Part third of Nostromo by Joseph Conrad. The Lighthouse, Chapter 8. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part third, The Lighthouse, Chapter 8. After landing from his swim, Nostromo had scrambled up, all dripping, into the main quadrangle of the old fort. And there, amongst ruined bits of wall and rotting remnants of roofs and sheds, he had slept the day through. He had slept in the shadow of the mountains, in the white blaze of noon, in the stillness and solitude of that overgrown piece of land between the oval of the harbour and the spacious semicircle of the gulf. He lay as if dead. Aray Zanzuro, appearing like a tiny black speck in the blue, stooped, circling prudently with a stealthiness of flight startling in a bird of that great size. The shadow of his pearly white body, of his black-tipped wings, fell on the grass no more silently than he alighted himself on a hillock of rubbish within three yards of that man, lying as still as a corpse. The bird stretched his bare neck, craned his bald head, loathsome in the brilliance of varied colouring, with an air of voracious anxiety towards the promising stillness of that prostrate body. Then, sinking his head deeply into his soft plumage, he settled himself to wait. The first thing upon which Nostromo's eyes fell on waking was this patient watcher for the signs of death and corruption. When the man got up, the vulture hopped away in great sidelong fluttering jumps. He lingered for a while, morose and silent, before he rose, circling noiselessly with a sinister droop of beak and claws. Long after he had vanished, Nostromo, lifting his eyes up to the sky, muttered, I am not dead yet. The Capitaz of the Sulaco Cagadores had lived in splendour and publicity up to the very moment, as it were, when he took charge of the lighter containing the treasure of silver ingots. The last act he had performed in Sulaco was in complete harmony with his vanity, and as such, perfectly genuine. He had given his last dollar to an old woman moaning with the grief and fatigue of a dismal search under the arch of the ancient gate. Performed in obscurity and without witnesses, it had still the characteristics of splendour and publicity and was in strict keeping with his reputation. But this awakening in solitude, except for the watchful vulture, amongst the ruins of the fort, had no such characteristics. His first confused feeling was exactly this, that it was not in keeping. It was more like the end of things. The necessity of living concealed somehow, for God knows how long, which assailed him on his return to consciousness, made everything that had gone before for years appear vain and foolish, like a flattering dream come suddenly to an end. He climbed the crumbling slope of the rampart and, putting aside the bushes, looked upon the harbour. He saw a couple of ships at anchor upon the sheet of water reflecting the last gleams of light and Sotillo's steamer moored to the jetty. And behind the pale long front of the custom house there appeared the extent of the town like a grove of thick timber on the plain with a gateway in front and the cupolas, towers and miradors rising above the trees, all dark, as if surrendered already to the night. The thought that it was no longer open to him to ride through the streets, recognised by everyone, great and little, as he used to do every evening on his way to play Monte in the posada of the Mexican Domingo, or to sit in the place of honour listening to songs and looking at dances, made it appear to him as a town that had no existence. 
For a long time he gazed on, then let the parted bushes spring back, and crossing over to the other side of the fort, surveyed the vaster emptiness of the great gulf. The Isabel stood out heavily upon the narrowing long band of red in the west, which gleamed low between their black shapes, and the Capitaz thought of Deku alone there with the treasure. That man was the only one who cared whether he fell into the hands of the Monterists or not, the Capitaz reflected bitterly, and that merely would be an anxiety for his own sake. As to the rest, they neither knew nor cared. What he had heard Giorgio Viola say once was very true. Kings, ministers, aristocrats, the rich in general, kept the people in poverty and subjection. They kept them as they kept dogs to fight and hunt for their service. The darkness of the sky had descended to the line of the horizon, enveloping the whole gulf, the islets, and the lover of Antonia alone with the treasure on the great Isabel. The Capitaz, turning his back on these things, invisible and existing, sat down and took his face between his fists. He felt the pinch of poverty for the first time in his life. To find himself without money after a run of bad luck at Monte in the low smoky room of Domingo's Posada, where the fraternity of Cargadores gambled, sang and danced of an evening, to remain with empty pockets after a burst of public generosity to some Pandoro girl or other for whom he did not care, had none of the humiliation of destitution. He remained rich in glory and reputation. But since it was no longer possible for him to parade the streets of the town and be hailed with respect in the usual haunts of his leisure, this sailor felt himself destitute indeed. His mouth was dry. It was dry with heavy sleep and extremely anxious thinking, as it had never been dry before. It may be said that Nostromo tasted the dust and ashes of the fruit of life into which he had bitten deeply in his hunger for praise. Without removing his head from between his fists, he tried to spit before him, and muttered a curse upon the selfishness of all the rich people. Since everything seemed lost in Sulaco, and that was the feeling of his waking, the idea of leaving the country altogether had presented itself to Nostromo. At that thought he had seen, like the beginning of another dream, a vision of steep and tideless shores, with dark pines on the heights and white houses low down near the very blue sea. He saw the quays of a big port, where the coasting for lookers, with their lateen sails outspread like motionless wings, enter gliding silently between the end of long moles of squared blocks that project angularly towards each other, hugging a cluster of shipping to the superb bosom of a hill covered with palaces. He remembered these sights not without some filial emotion, though he had been habitually and severely beaten as a boy on one of these felucas by a short-necked, shaven Genoese, with a deliberate and distrustful manner, who, he firmly believed, had cheated him out of his orphan's inheritance. But it is mercifully decreed that the evils of the past should appear but faintly in retrospect. Under the sense of loneliness, abandonment and failure, the idea of return to these things appeared tolerable. But what? Return? With bare feet and head, with one check shirt and a pair of cotton calzoneros for all worldly possessions? The renowned Capitaz, his elbows on his knees and a fist dug into each cheek, laughed with self-derision as he had spat with disgust straight out before him into the night. 
the confused and intimate impressions of universal dissolution which beset a subjective nature at any strong check to its ruling passion, had a bitterness approaching that of death itself. He was simple. He was as ready to become the prey of any belief, superstition or desire, as a child. The facts of his situation he could appreciate like a man with a distinct experience of the country. He saw them clearly. He was as if sobered after a long bout of intoxication. His fidelity had been taken advantage of. He had persuaded the body of Cargadores to side with the Blancos against the rest of the people. He had had interviews with Don Jose. He had been made use of by Father Corbelan for negotiating with Hernandez. It was known that Don Martin Decou had admitted him to a sort of intimacy, so that he had been free of the officers of the poor veneer. All these things had flattered him in the usual way. What did he care about their politics? Nothing at all. And, at the end of it all, Nostromo here, Nostromo there, where is Nostromo? Nostromo can do this and that, work all day and ride all night. Behold, he found himself a marked Ribierist for any sort of vengeance Camacho, for instance, would choose to take. Now the Montero party had, after all, mastered the town. The Europeans had given up. The Caballeros had given up. Don Martin had indeed explained it was only temporary that he was going to bring Barrios to the rescue. Where was that now, with Don Martin, whose ironic manner of talk had always made the Capitas feel vaguely uneasy, stranded on the great Isabel? Everybody had given up. Even Don Carlos had given up. The hurried removal of the treasure out to sea meant nothing else than that. The Capitas de Cargadores, on a revulsion of subjectiveness, exasperated almost to insanity, beheld all his world without faith and courage. He had been betrayed. With the boundless shadows of the sea behind him, out of his silence and immobility, facing the lofty shapes of the lower peaks crowded around the white, misty sheen of Higuerota, Nostromo laughed aloud again, sprang abruptly to his feet and stood still. He must go. But where? There is no mistake. They keep us and encourage us as if we were dogs born to fight and hunt for them. The Vecchio is right, he said, slowly and scathingly. He remembered old Giorgio taking his pipe out of his mouth to throw these words over his shoulder at the cafe full of engine drivers and fitters from the railway workshops. This image fixed his wavering purpose. He would try to find old Giorgio if he could. God knows what might have happened to him. He made a few steps, then stopped again, and shook his head. To the left and right, in front and behind him, the scrubby bush rustled mysteriously in the darkness. Teresa was right too, he added in a low tone, touched with awe. He wondered whether she was dead in her anger with him, or still alive. As if in answer to this thought, half of remorse and half of hope, with a soft flutter and a bleak flight, a big owl whose appalling cry, Yakabo, Yakabo, it is finished, it is finished, announces calamity and death in the popular belief, drifted vaguely like a large dark ball across his path. In the downfall of all the realities that made his force, he was affected by the superstition and shuddered slightly. Signora Teresa must have died then. It could mean nothing else. 
The cry of the ill-omened bird, the first sound he was to hear on his return, was a fitting welcome for his betrayed individuality. The unseen powers which he had offended by refusing to bring a priest to a dying woman were lifting up their voice against him. She was dead. With admirable and human consistency, he referred everything to himself. She had been a woman of good counsel always, and the bereaved old Giorgio remained stunned by his loss, just as he was likely to require the advice of his sagacity. The blow would render the dreamy old man quite stupid for a time. As to Captain Mitchell, Nostromo, after the manner of trusted subordinates, considered him as a person fitted by education, perhaps, to sign papers in an office and to give orders, but otherwise of no use whatever, and something of a fool. The necessity of winding round his little finger almost daily the pompous and testy self-importance of the old seaman had grown irksome with use to Nostromo. At first it had given him an inward satisfaction, but the necessity of overcoming small obstacles becomes wearisome to a self-confident personality as much by the certitude of success as by the monotony of effort. He mistrusted his superior's proneness to fussy action. That old Englishman had no judgment, he said to himself. It was useless to suppose that, acquainted with the true state of the case, he would keep it to himself. He would talk of doing impracticable things. Nostromo feared him as one would fear saddling oneself with some persistent worry. He had no discretion. He would betray the treasure. And Nostromo had made up his mind that the treasure should not be betrayed. The word had fixed itself tenaciously in his intelligence. His imagination had seized upon the clear and simple notion of betrayal to account for the dazed feeling of enlightenment as to being done for, of having inadvertently gone out of his existence on an issue in which his personality had not been taken into account. A man betrayed is a man destroyed. Signora Teresa, may God have her soul, had been right. He had never been taken into account. Destroyed. Her white form sitting up bowed in bed the falling black hair, the wide-browed suffering face raised to him, the anger of her denunciations, appeared to him now majestic with the awfulness of inspiration and of death. For it was not for nothing that the evil bird had uttered its lamentable shriek over his head. She was dead. May God have her soul. Sharing in the anti-priestly freethought of the masses, his mind used the pious formula from the superficial force of habit, but with a deep-seated sincerity. The popular mind is incapable of scepticism, and that incapacity delivers their helpless strength to the wiles of swindlers and to the pitiless enthusiasms of leaders inspired by visions of a high destiny. She was dead, but would God consent to receive her soul? She had died without confession or absolution, because he had not been willing to spare her another moment of his time. His scorn of priests as priests remained, but after all it was impossible to know whether what they affirmed was not true. Power, punishment, pardon are simple and credible notions. The magnificent Capitas de Cargadores, deprived of certain simple realities, such as the admiration of women, the adulation of men, the admired publicity of his life, was ready to feel the burden of sacrilegious guilt descend upon his shoulders. Bareheaded in a thin shirt and drawers, he felt the lingering warmth of the fine sand under the soles of his feet. The narrow strand gleamed far ahead in a long curve, 
defining the outline of this wild side of the harbour. He flitted along the shore like a pursued shadow between the sombre palm groves and the sheet of water lying as still as death on his right hand. He strode with headlong haste in the silence and solitude as though he had forgotten all prudence and caution. But he knew that on this side of the water he ran no risk of discovery. The only inhabitant was a lonely, silent, apathetic Indian in charge of the Palmarias who brought sometimes a load of coconuts to the town for sale. He lived without a woman in an open shed with a perpetual fire of dry sticks smouldering near an old canoe lying bottom up on the beach. He could be easily avoided. The barking of the dogs about that man's ranch was the first thing that checked his speed. He had forgotten the dogs. He swerved sharply and plunged into the palm grove as into a wilderness of columns in an immense hall whose dense obscurity seemed to whisper and rustle faintly high above his head. He traversed it, entered a ravine, and climbed to the top of a steep ridge free of trees and bushes. From there, open and vague in the starlight, he saw the plain between the town and the harbour. In the woods above, some night bird made a strange drumming noise. Below, beyond the palmaria on the beach, the Indians' dogs continued to bark uproariously. He wondered what had upset them so much, and, peering down from his elevation, was surprised to detect unaccountable movements of the ground below, as if several oblong pieces of the plain had been in motion. Those dark, shifting patches, alternately catching and eluding the eye, altered their place always away from the harbour, with a suggestion of consecutive order and purpose. A light dawned upon him. It was a column of infantry on a night march towards the higher broken country at the foot of the hills. But he was too much in the dark about everything for wonder and speculation. The plain had resumed its shadowy immobility. He descended the ridge and found himself in the open solitude between the harbour and the town. Its spaciousness, extended indefinitely by an effect of obscurity, rendered more sensible his profound isolation. His pace became slower. No one waited for him. No one thought of him. No one expected or wished his return. Betrayed, betrayed, he muttered to himself. No one cared. He might have been drowned by this time. No one would have cared, unless perhaps the children, he thought to himself. But they were with the English Signora, and not thinking of him at all. He wavered in his purpose of making straight for the Casa Viola. To what end? What could he expect there? His life seemed to fail him in all its details, even to the scornful reproaches of Teresa. He was aware painfully of his reluctance. Was it that remorse which he had prophesied with what he saw now was her last breath? Meantime, he had deviated from the straight course, inclining by a sort of instinct to the right, towards the jetty and the harbour, the scene of his daily labours. The great length of the custom-house loomed up all at once like the wall of a factory. Not a soul challenged his approach, and his curiosity became excited as he passed cautiously towards the front by the unexpected sight of two lighted windows. They had the fascination of a lonely vigil kept by some mysterious watcher up there, those two windows shining dimly upon the harbour in the whole vast extent of the abandoned building. The solitude could almost be felt, a strong smell of wood smoke hung about in a thin haze, which was faintly perceptible to his raised eyes against the glitter of the stars. 
As he advanced in the profound silence, the shrilling of innumerable cicadas in the dry grass seemed positively deafening to his strained ears. Slowly, step by step, he found himself in the great hall, sombre and full of acrid smoke. A fire built against the staircase had burnt down impotently to a low heap of embers. The hard wood had failed to catch, only a few steps at the bottom smouldered, with a creeping glow of sparks defining their charred edges. At the top he saw a streak of light from an open door. It fell upon the vast landing, all foggy with a slow drift of smoke. That was the room. He climbed the stairs, then checked himself, because he had seen within the shadow of a man cast upon one of the walls. It was a shapeless, high-shouldered shadow of somebody standing still, with lowered head, out of his line of sight. The Capitaz, remembering that he was totally unarmed, stepped aside, and, effacing himself upright in a dark corner, waited with his eyes fixed on the door. The whole enormous ruined barrack of a place, unfinished, without ceilings under its lofty roof, was pervaded by the smoke swaying to and fro in the faint cross-draughts playing in the obscurity of many lofty rooms and barn-like passages. Once one of the swinging shutters came against the wall with a single sharp crack as if pushed by an impatient hand. A piece of paper scurried out from somewhere rustling along the landing. The man, whoever he was, did not darken the lighted doorway. Twice the Capitaz, advancing a couple of steps out of his corner, craned his neck in the hope of catching sight of what he could be at so quietly in there. But every time he saw only the distorted shadow of broad shoulders and bowed head. He was doing apparently nothing, and stirred not from the spot, as though he were meditating, or perhaps reading a paper, and not a sound issued from the room. Once more the Capitaz stepped back, he wondered who it was, some Monterist? But he dreaded to show himself. To discover his presence on shore, unless after many days, would, he believed, endanger the treasure. With his own knowledge possessing his whole soul, it seemed impossible that anybody in Sulaco should fail to jump at the right surmise. After a couple of weeks or so, it would be different. Who could tell he had not returned overland from some port beyond the limits of the Republic? The existence of the treasure confused his thoughts with a peculiar sort of anxiety, as though his life had become bound up with it. It rendered him timorous for a moment before that enigmatic lighted door. Devil take the fellow. He did not want to see him. There would be nothing to learn from his face, known or unknown. He was a fool to waste his time there in waiting. Less than five minutes after entering the place, the Capitaz began his retreat. He got away down the stairs with perfect success, gave one upward look over his shoulder at the light on the landing, and ran stealthily across the hall. But at the very moment he was turning out of the great door, with his mind fixed upon escaping the notice of the man upstairs, somebody he had not heard coming briskly along the front ran full into him. Both muttered a stifled exclamation of surprise, and leapt back and stood still, each indistinct to the other. Nostromo was silent. The other man spoke first, in an amazed and deadened tone. Who are you? Already Nostromo had seemed to recognise Dr. Monigham. He had no doubt now. He hesitated the space of a second. The idea of bolting without a word presented itself to his mind. No use. An inexplicable repugnance to pronounce the name by which he was known kept him silent a little longer. At last he said, in a low voice, 
I can't go down. He walked up to the other. Dr. Monningham had received a shock. He flung his arms up and cried out his wonder aloud, forgetting himself before the marvel of this meeting. Nostromo angrily warned him to moderate his voice. The custom house was not so deserted as it looked. There was somebody in the lighted room above. There is no more evanescent quality in an accomplished fact than its wonderfulness. Solicited incessantly by the considerations affecting its fears and desires, the human mind turns naturally away from the marvellous side of events. And it was in the most natural way possible that the doctor asked this man, whom only two minutes before he believed to have been drowned in the gulf, "'You've seen somebody up there, have you?' "'No, I have not seen him.' "'Then how do you know?' "'I was running away from his shadow when we met.' "'His shadow?' Yes, his shadow in the lighted room, said Nostromo in a contemptuous tone. Leaning back with folded arms at the door of the immense building, he dropped his head, biting his lips slightly, and not looking at the doctor. Now, he thought to himself, he will begin asking me about the treasure. But the doctor's thoughts were concerned with an event not as marvellous as Nostromo's appearance, but in itself much less clear. Why had Satio taken himself off with his whole command with this suddenness and secrecy? What did this move portend? However, it dawned upon the doctor that the man upstairs was one of the officers left behind by the disappointed colonel to communicate with him. I believe he is waiting for me, he said. It is possible. I must see. Do not go away yet, Capitaz. Go away where? muttered Nostromo. Already the doctor had left him. He remained leaning against the wall, staring at the dark water of the harbour. The shrilling of cicalas filled his ears. An invincible vagueness coming over his thoughts took from them all power to determine his will. Capitaz! Capitaz! the doctor's voice called urgently from above. The sense of betrayal and ruin floated upon his sombre indifference as upon a sluggish sea of pitch. But he stepped out from under the wall and, looking up, saw Dr. Monaghan leaning out of a lighted window. Come up and see what Satio has done. You need not fear the man up here. He answered by a slight bitter laugh. Fear a man? The capitals of the Sulaco Cargadores fear a man? It angered him that anybody should suggest such a thing. It angered him to be disarmed and skulking and in danger because of the accursed treasure which was of so little account to the people who had tied it round his neck. He could not shake off the worry of it. To Nostromo the doctor represented all these people. And he had never even asked after it. Not a word of inquiry about the most desperate undertaking of his life. Thinking these thoughts, Nostromo passed again through the cavernous hall where the smoke was considerably thinned and went up the stairs, not so warm to his feet now, towards the streak of light at the top. The doctor appeared in it for a moment, agitated and impatient. Come up! Come up! At the moment of crossing the doorway, the Capitaz experienced a shock of surprise. The man had not moved. He saw his shadow in the same place. He started, then stepped in with a feeling of being about to solve a mystery. It was very simple. For an infinitesimal fraction of a second, against the light of two flaring and guttering candles, through a blue, pungent, thin haze which made his eyes smart, he saw the man standing, as he had imagined him, with his back to the door, casting an enormous and distorted shadow upon the wall. 
swifter than a flash of lightning, followed the impression of his constrained, toppling attitude, the shoulders projecting forward, the head sunk low upon the breast. Then he distinguished the arms behind his back, and wrenched so terribly that the two clenched fists lashed together had been forced up higher than the shoulder blades. From there his eyes traced in one instantaneous glance the hide rope going upwards from the tied wrists over a heavy beam and down to a staple in the wall. He did not want to look at the rigid legs, at the feet hanging down nervelessly with their bare toes some six inches above the floor, to know that the man had been given the estrapade until he had swooned. His first impulse was to dash forward and sever the rope at one blow, he felt for his knife. He had no knife, not even a knife. He stood quivering, and the doctor, perched on the edge of the table, facing thoughtfully the cruel and lamentable sight, his chin in his hand, uttered without stirring. Tortured, and shot dead through the breast, getting cold. This information calmed the Capitez. One of the candles flickering in the socket went out. Who did this? he asked. Sotillo, I tell you. Who else? Tortured, of course. But why shot? The doctor looked fixedly at Nostromo, who shrugged his shoulders slightly. And Mark shot suddenly, on impulse. It is evident. I wish I had his secret. Nostromo had advanced and stooped slightly to look. I seem to have seen that face somewhere, he muttered. Who is he? The doctor turned his eyes upon him again. I may yet come to envying his fate. What do you think of that, Capitas? Eh? But Nostromo did not even hear these words. Seizing the remaining light, he thrust it under the drooping head. The doctor sat oblivious with a lost gaze. Then the heavy iron candlestick, as if struck out of Nostromo's hand, cluttered on the floor. Hello! exclaimed the doctor, looking up with a start. He could hear the Capitas stagger against the table and gasp. In the sudden extinction of the light within, the dead blackness sealing the window frames became alive with stars to his sight. Of course, of course, the doctor muttered to himself in English, enough to make him jump out of his skin. Nostromo's heart seemed to force itself into his throat. His head swam. Hirsch! The man was Hirsch! He held on tight to the edge of the table. But he was hiding in the lighter, he almost shouted, his voice fell. In the lighter, and, and, and Satio brought him in, said the doctor. He is no more startling to you than you were to me. What I want to know is how he induced some compassionate soul to shoot him. So Satio knows, began Nostromo in a more equable voice. Everything, interrupted the doctor. The Capitas was heard striking the table with his fist. Everything? What are you saying there? Everything? No, everything? It is impossible. Everything? Of course. What do you mean by impossible? I tell you I have heard this Hirsch question last night, here, in this very room. He knew your name, Deku's name, and all about the loading of the silver. The lighter was cut in two. He was grovelling in abject terror before Satio, but he remembered that much. What do you want more? He knew least about himself. They found him clinging to their anchor. He must have courted it just as the lighter went to the bottom. Went to the bottom, repeated Nostromo slowly. Sotillo believes that? Bueno. The doctor, a little impatiently, was unable to imagine what else could anybody believe. 
Yes, Satillo believed that the lighter was sunk, and the Capitas de Cargadores, together with Martin Decoux, and perhaps one or two other political fugitives, had been drowned. I told you well, Senor Doctor, remarked Nostromo at that point, that Sotillo did not know everything. Eh, what do you mean? He did not know I was not dead. Neither did we. And you did not care, neither of you caballeros on the wharf, once you got off a man of flesh and blood like yourselves on a fool's business that could not end well. You forget, Capitaz, I was not on the wharf, and I did not think well of the business so you need not taunt me. I tell you what, man, we had but little leisure to think of the dead. Death stands near behind us all. You were gone. I went, indeed, broke in Nostromo, and for the sake of what? Tell me. Ah, that's your own affair, the doctor said roughly. Do not ask me. Their flowing murmurs paused in the dark. Perched on the edge of the table with slightly averted faces, they felt their shoulders touch and their eyes remained directed towards an upright shape nearly lost in the obscurity of the inner part of the room that with projecting head and shoulders in ghastly immobility seemed intent on catching every word. Muy bien, Nostromo muttered at last. So be it. Teresa was right. It is my own affair. Teresa is dead, remarked the doctor absently while his mind followed a new line of thought, suggested by what might have been called Nostromo's return to life. She died, the poor woman. Without a priest? the Capitaz asked anxiously. What a question! Who could have got a priest for her last night? May God keep her soul, ejaculated Nostromo, with a gloomy and hopeless fervour which had no time to surprise Dr. Monigham, before, reverting to their previous conversation, he continued in a sinister tone. See, si, Signor Doctor, as you were saying, it is my own affair, a very desperate affair. There are no two men in this part of the world that could have saved themselves by swimming as you have done, the doctor said admiringly. And again there was silence between those two men. They were both reflecting, and the diversity of their natures made their thoughts born from their meeting swing afar from each other. The doctor, imperiled to risky action by his loyalty to the Goulds, wondered with thankfulness at the chain of accident which had brought that man back where he would be of the greatest use in the work of saving the San Tomé mine. The doctor was loyal to the mine. It presented itself to his fifty years old eyes in the shape of a little woman in a soft dress with a long train, with a head attractively overweighted by a great mass of fair hair, and the delicate preciousness of her inner worth partaking of a gem and a flower revealed in every attitude of her person. As the dangers thickened around the San Tomé mine, this illusion acquired force, permanency and authority. It claimed him at last. This claim, exalted by a spiritual detachment from the usual sanction of hope and reward, made Dr. Monningham's thinking, acting, individuality, extremely dangerous to himself and to others, all his scruples vanishing in the proud feeling that his devotion was the only thing that stood between an admirable woman and a frightful disaster. It was a sort of intoxication which made him utterly indifferent to Decoux's fate, but left his wits perfectly clear for the appreciation of Decoux's political idea. It was a good idea, and Barrios was the only instrument of its realisation. The doctor's soul, withered and shrunk by the shame of a moral disgrace, became implacable in the expansion of its tenderness. 
Nostromo's return was providential. He did not think of him humanely as of a fellow creature just escaped from the jaws of death. The Capitas, for him, was the only possible messenger to Kaita, the very man. The doctor's misanthropic mistrust of mankind, the bitterer because based on personal failure, did not lift him sufficiently above common weaknesses. He was under the spell of an established reputation. Trumpeted by Captain Mitchell, grown in repetition and fixed in general assent, Nostromo's faithfulness had never been questioned by Dr. Monigham as a fact. It was not likely to be questioned now he stood in desperate need of it himself. Dr. Monigham was human. He accepted the popular conception of the Capitas's incorruptibility simply because no word or fact had ever contradicted a mere affirmation. It seemed to be part of the man, like his whiskers or his teeth. It was impossible to conceive him otherwise. The question was whether he would consent to go on such a dangerous and desperate errand. The doctor was observant enough to have become aware from the first of something peculiar in the man's temper. He was no doubt sore about the loss of the silver. It will be necessary to take him into my fullest confidence, he said to himself, with a certain acuteness of insight into the nature he had to deal with. On Nostromo's side, the silence had been full of black irresolution, anger and mistrust. He was the first to break it, however. The swimming was no great matter, he said. It is what went before, and what comes after, that... He did not quite finish what he meant to say, breaking off short, as though his thought had butted against a solid obstacle. The doctor's mind pursued its own schemes with Machiavellian subtlety. He said, as sympathetically as he was able, It is unfortunate, Capitaz, but no one would think of blaming you. Very unfortunate. To begin with, the treasure ought never to have left the mountain, but it was Deku who... However, he is dead. There is no need to talk of him. No, assented Nostromo as the doctor paused. There is no need to talk of dead men, but I am not dead yet. You are all right. Only a man of your intrepidity could have saved himself. In this, Dr. Monigham was sincere. He esteemed highly the intrepidity of that man, whom he valued but little, being disillusioned as to mankind in general, because of the particular instance in which his own manhood had failed. Having had to encounter single-handed during his period of eclipse many physical dangers, he was well aware of the most dangerous element common to them all, of the crushing, paralysing sense of human littleness, which is what really defeats a man struggling with natural forces, alone, far from the eyes of his fellows. He was eminently fit to appreciate the mental image he made for himself of the Capitas, after hours of tension and anxiety, precipitated suddenly into an abyss of waters and darkness, without earth or sky, and confronting it not only with an undismayed mind, but with sensible success. Of course, the man was an incomparable swimmer, that was known, but the doctor judged that this instance testified to a still greater intrepidity of spirit. It was pleasing to him. He augured well from it for the success of the arduous mission with which he meant to entrust the Capitas, so marvellously restored to usefulness. And in a tone vaguely gratified, he observed, It must have been terribly dark. It was the worst darkness of the Golfo, the Capitas assented briefly. He was mollified by what seemed a sign of some faint interest in such things as had befallen him and dropped a few descriptive phrases with an affected and curt nonchalance. At that moment he felt communicative. 
He expected the continuance of that interest which, whether accepted or rejected, would have restored to him his personality, the only thing lost in that desperate affair. But the doctor, engrossed by a desperate adventure of his own, was terrible in the pursuit of his idea. He let an exclamation of regret escape him. I could almost wish you had shouted and shown a light. This unexpected utterance astounded the Capitaz by its character of cold-blooded atrocity. It was as much as to say, I wish you had sown yourself a coward. I wish you had had your throat cut for your pains. Naturally, he referred it to himself, whereas it related only to the silver, being uttered simply and with many mental reservations. Surprise and rage rendered him speechless, and the doctor pursued, practically unheard by Nostromo, whose stirred blood was beating violently in his ears. For I am convinced Sotillo, in possession of the silver, would have turned short round and made for some small port abroad. Economically it would have been wasteful, but still less wasteful than having it sunk. It was the next best thing to having it at hand in some safe place and using part of it to buy up Sotillo. But I doubt whether Don Carlos would have ever made up his mind to it. He's not fit for Costaguana, and that is a fact, Capitaz. The Capitaz had mastered the fury that was like a tempest in his ears in time to hear the name of Don Carlos. He seemed to have come out of it a changed man, a man who spoke thoughtfully in a soft and even voice. And would Don Carlos have been content if I had surrendered this treasure? I should not wonder if they were all of that way of thinking now, the doctor said grimly. I was never consulted. Decoux had it his own way. Their eyes are open by this time, I should think. I for one knew that if that silver turned up this moment miraculously ashore, I would give it to Satillo, and as things stand, I would be approved. Turned up miraculously, repeated the Capitaz very low, then raised his voice. That, Signor, would be a greater miracle than any saint could perform. I believe you, Capitaz, said the doctor dryly. He went on to develop his view of Satillo's dangerous influence upon the situation. And the Capitaz, listening as if in a dream, felt himself of as little account as the indistinct, motionless shape of the dead man whom he saw upright under the beam, with his air of listening also, disregarded, forgotten, like a terrible example of neglect. What is it for an unconsidered and foolish whim that they come to me then? he interrupted suddenly. Had I not done enough for them to be of some account, Podios? Is it that the hombres finos, the gentlemen, need not think as long as there is a man of the people ready to risk his body and soul? Or perhaps we have no souls, like dogs. There was Decoud too with his plan, the doctor reminded him again. See, and the rich man in San Francisco had something to do with that treasure too. What do I know? Now, I have heard too many things. It seems to me that everything is permitted to the rich. I understand, Capitaz, the doctor began. What, Capitaz? broke in Nostromo in a forcible but even voice. The Capitaz is undone, destroyed. There is no Capitaz. Oh no, you will find the Capitaz no more. Come, this is childish, remonstrated the doctor, and the other calmed down suddenly. I have been indeed like a little child, he muttered. And as his eyes met again the shape of the murdered man, suspended in his awful immobility, which seemed the uncomplaining immobility of attention, he asked, wondering gently, Why did Sotillo give the astropad to this pitiful wretch, do you know? 
No torture could have been worse than his fear. Killing, I can understand. His anguish was intolerable to behold. But why should he torment him like this? He could tell no more. No, he could tell nothing more. Any sane man would have seen that. He had told him everything. But I tell you what it is, Capitas, Satio would not believe what he was told. Not everything. What is it that he would not believe? I cannot understand. I can because I have seen the man. He refuses to believe that the treasure is lost. What? the captain cried out in a discomposed tone. That startles you, eh? Am I to understand, Signor? Nostromo went on in a deliberate and, as it were, watchful tone. That Sotillo thinks the treasure has been saved by some means? No, no, that would be impossible, said the doctor with conviction. And Nostromo emitted a grunt in the dark. That would be impossible. He thinks that the silver was no longer in the lighter when she was sunk. He has convinced himself that the whole show of getting it away to sea is a mere sham got up to deceive Gamacho and his nationals, Pedrito Montero, Senor Fuentes, and your F.A. Politico, and himself too. And he says he is no such fool. But he is devoid of sense. He is the greatest imbecile that ever called himself a colonel in his country of evil, growled Nostromo. He is no more unreasonable than many sensible men, said the doctor. He has convinced himself that the treasure can be found because he desires passionately to possess himself of it. And he is also afraid of his officers turning upon him and going over to Pedrito, whom he has not the courage either to fight or trust. Do you see that, Capitaz? He need fear no desertion as long as some hope remains of that enormous plunder turning up. I have made it my business to keep this very hope up. You have, the Capitaz de Cargadores repeated cautiously. Well, that is wonderful. And how long do you think you are going to keep it up? As long as I can. What does that mean? I can tell you exactly. As long as I live, the doctor retorted with a stubborn voice. Then, in a few words, he described the story of his arrest and the circumstances of his release. I was going back to that silly scoundrel when we met, he concluded. Nostromo had listened with profound attention. You have made up your mind then to a speedy death, he muttered through his clenched teeth. Perhaps, my illustrious Capitaz, the doctor said testily, you are not the only one here who can look an ugly death in the face. Not that, mumbled Nostromo loud enough to be overheard. There may be even more than two fools in this place. Who knows? And that is my affair, said the doctor curtly. As taking out the accursed silver to say was my affair, retorted Nostromo. I see. Bueno. Each of us has his reasons. But you were the last man I conversed with before I started, and you talked to me as if I were a fool. Nostromo had a great distaste for the doctor's sardonic treatment of his great reputation. Decoux's faintly ironic recognition used to make him uneasy. But the familiarity of a man like Don Martin was flattering, whereas the doctor was a nobody. He could remember him a penniless outcast, slinking about the streets of Salaco without a single friend or acquaintance till Don Carlos Gould took him into the service of the mine. You may be very wise, he went on thoughtfully, staring into the obscurity of the room, pervaded by the gruesome enigma of the tortured and murdered Hirsch. But I am not such a fool as when I started... I have learned one thing since, and that is that you are a dangerous man. 
Dr. Munningham was too startled to do more than exclaim, What is it you say? If he could speak, he would say the same thing, pursued Nostromo, with a nod of his shadowy head silhouetted against the starlit window. I do not understand you, said Dr. Monningham faintly. No? Perhaps if you had not confirmed Sotillo in his madness, he would have been in no haste to give the estrapade to that miserable hush. The doctor started at the suggestion, but his devotion, absorbing all his sensibilities, had left his heart steeled against remorse and pity. Still, for complete relief, he felt the necessity of repelling it loudly and contemptuously. Bah! You dare to tell me that with a man like Satio? I confess I did not give a thought to Hirsch. If I had, it would have been useless. Anybody can see that the luckless wretch was doomed from the moment he caught hold of the anchor. He was doomed, I tell you, just as I myself am doomed, most probably. This is what Dr. Monningham said in answer to Nostromo's remark, which was plausible enough to prick his conscience. He was not a callous man. But the necessity, the magnitude, the importance of the task he had taken upon himself dwarfed all merely humane considerations. He had undertaken it in a fanatical spirit. He did not like it. To lie, to deceive, to circumvent even the basest of mankind was odious to him. It was odious to him by training, instinct and tradition. To do these things in the character of a traitor was abhorrent to his nature and terrible to his feelings. He had made that sacrifice in a spirit of abasement. He had said to himself bitterly, I am the only one fit for that dirty work. And he believed this. He was not subtle. His simplicity was such that, though he had no sort of heroic idea of seeking death, the risk deadly enough to which he exposed himself had a sustaining and comforting effect. To that spiritual state, the fate of Hirsch presented itself as part of the general atrocity of things. He considered that episode practically. What did it mean? Was it a sign of some dangerous change in Satillo's delusion? That the man should have been killed like this was what the doctor could not understand. Yes, but why shot, he murmured to himself. Nostromo kept very still. End of part third, The Lighthouse, chapter eight.